Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, so we can rightly divide it, being like the Bereans, receiving the Word of God with all joy, but searching the Scriptures to see whether or not these things are true. I love 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. Our first question comes from our study this weekend, where we talked about Jesus clearing the temple. The first question says, when Jesus was angry in the temple, was it an outburst of wrath? And I understand why they asked this question. It was a a little bit critical. Like if this is Jesus cleansing the temple, he goes in and he gets mad, is he then doing what Galatians says when it says that the works of the flesh are, and it gives a list, and then it says an outburst of wrath. I would say that this is not an outburst of wrath. The Bible says that Jesus, although he was tempted in every way we are tempted, yet it was out, it was without temptation. And so it's really important for you and I to understand what the Bible is saying. I believe it is an opportunity, it is an example of righteous anger. Jesus said, be angry and do not sin. That's where we want to be. We want to be the place where we are not, where we're, where we get upset over things that are wrong, but we don't sin when we're upset over those things that are wrong. I have it up here on the screen for you, for the scriptures. I want to just go ahead and read through this. I was going to say, we're having some technical difficulty today. All right. So this is Jesus cleansing the temple. Let's just read through this and see what we can find. When he went up into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. He drove out those who bought and sold because he was upset that they were um, merchandising the word of God. They were turning people's sincere desire to be able to seek God into a desire to, uh, to make money. And God was upset by that. And churches today, by the way, should take heed that they do not do the same thing. It goes on to say here in that same passage, let me get back to the right spot here. Okay, um, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So not only were they merchandising by buying and selling in the temple, it had turned into an entire market. Like if you were to go to a regular outdoor market, that's what it was like. And now it's a den of thieves because they're taking advantage of people's sincere desire to worship and serve God. Unfortunately, that happens today as well. People go to church, but all they're interested in is talking about money or selling something that they have. And instead of teaching people how to live for God, they teach something that is entirely different. And I think that that truly is is really sad. It says, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do so for all of the people were very attentive to hear him. And so there's where we get the idea that they need Judas because people are attentive to hear him. And so they can't really just come in and arrest him. 
But I think today churches should take heed. And being a pastor of a church for 37 years, teaching this passage last week, I always wanna evaluate my own life. I never wanna read something as if I'm reading it for someone else. We've gotta ask ourselves, we have a bookstore. From time to time, we'll sell certain t-shirts. Are we marketing God's people? Is this something God doesn't want us to do? And for sure, are we taking advantage of people, trying to find ways to get money from people instead of truly ministering to them? And I think it's very important if you are a pastor or a leader of a church that you stay as far away from this as you possibly can. I believe it's one of the reasons for the whole debacle that happened over hiding sexual sin within international Hillsong uh, because they were making money. They didn't want the money to be hurt. If something happens within a church on some unspeakable thing, the police should be called. The whole thing should be revealed as to exactly what the problem is instead of hiding things or trying to handle things from the you know, the own point of view of the church. If a church is just trying to protect its brand, then there are real problems that are there. All right, so good to see you guys. Great to have you here. I'm gonna go ahead and take a look for the first question and we'll bring it in. And uh, I don't see Andre here today with the first question, so fact check these hands. Says, good to see you, by the way. Fact check these hands says, let's go ahead and bring in your question here again. Fact check these hands comes to us from YouTube and says, do you see the Bible ever banned in the US? I'm afraid it may be the ultimate goal of Biden's disinformation board. Do I ever see the Bible being banned in the US? Um, I think prayer has been banned from school. <clears throat> I think you can talk about all kinds of things if you're a professor in schools against God, but I think if you're a professor and you start talking about God, you could get in a lot of trouble. So yeah, I do see if things were to continue to go on a certain way <clears throat> that the Bible would be banned from public places. Uh, hopefully our own personal freedoms would not be infringed upon, but who knows where things are gonna go in 20 or 30 years. Who knows whether we're gonna find ourselves in a place where uh, we are gonna be banned on the kind of things that we're serving and, um, and, and reading and wanting to do as Christians. Our freedoms may very well be impinged upon. And if they are impinged upon, then I don't think that we should be too upset about that because the Bible says, blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake. And we can't expect that the world is going to love us. I want as much freedom as I can possibly have. I wanna do the work that God has called me to do, and I wanna do it faithfully, and I wanna do it effectively. But if we start being persecuted for Christ, remember, it was under the persecution of the early church that the, God, that the church began to really swell. The numbers of the church really began to grow, and that's important for us to understand. And I think that when we are persecuted, we're gonna step up. <laughs> Jesus says, um, Jesus tells us to tell everybody and we tell nobody. He told people in the Bible to tell no one. They told everybody. When we are persecuted, we will realize how important and powerful these things are 
that you and I have, and we will not be caught up in something that we should not be caught up into. So, all right. Um, as I said, got some technical difficulties going on today. Got some new stuff here in the studio. Uh, we will take time to get all of those figured out. All right. So, um, as far as the defense disinformation board um, from Joe Biden, uh, I think the media leaning towards the left has been the strongest disinformation that's out there. So it's just kind of crazy that they take something that is disinformation and blame it on the other side. Um, so I don't like to get political. Most people know that. Uh, I just think there's such hypocrisy with that that it is absolutely, um, absolutely amazing. All right. So let's go ahead and bring in our second question today, which um, good to see you, Ashley, by the way, uh, which is from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, why did Jesus make a whip instead of use a whip that was lying around that was part of his gift of carpentry or stonemasonry because he was good with his hands? Thank you. Um, no, I don't, I don't know that there was a whip available. I don't know if Jesus wanted to take someone else's whip, um, but he just started to make it. And maybe he was good with his hands. I did upholstery from the time I was 17 until the time that I was 25. So there were seven years of me doing upholstery and I had a couple of businesses doing upholstery. And to this day, I'm still good at it. It was a long time ago that I did it. And to this day, I'm still good at it. So I imagine Jesus was good at what he was doing and being able to make a whip. Um, we're not kind of sure what kind of whip he made. We just don't know. Did it ever fall on a human back or an, an animal's back? We don't know. Could have, might not have. Um, but I think uh, Jesus did dump out the, mon the, the money from the tables, flipped over the money chambers tables, drove the cattle and the sheep out, the livestock out, and flipped over the, the seats where the birds were and told them to get the doves out of here, which were for the poor people. It's interesting to me that he didn't let the doves go that were for the poor people, but those that were buying lambs or cattle, he drove them out. Was this Jesus's heart for the poor? And if it is, remember part of the passage that he read about the gospel being preached to the poor is, would be really powerful. And I've often said, this is our wheelhouse. We want to be able to preach to the poor. I hear people say, I've had people say to me today before, um, I'm going up to, to this certain area and I'm going to preach there because rich people need to be preached to too. Okay, they do. But the poor are our wheelhouse. The poor are going to receive the message. The poor understand who they are and they understand, we're going to try this again, their own sinful state. And because of that, I think that we ought to have a strong ministry to the poor. It's something that I'm wanting to step up more and more with the church. And I think maybe making, maybe making that whip and driving out the cattle, driving out the people, because his father's house was to be a house of prayer and the zeal for his father's house consumed him. And then just flipping over the seat and telling them to get the birds out of there actually had something to do with those who were poor, which I find very interesting. 
I know that wasn't your question, Jari. Um, we don't really know why he used one made a whip instead of using a whip that was already there. So uh, we have a question from Paul. And Paul says, question, who had the final decision of what books should be included in the Bible? Can we trust the people who chose the documents uh, were included versus what was kept out of the Bible? Paul, I'm really glad that you asked this question because there is a deliberate movement by some to make it sound like there was this council that chose some and rejected others, but that's just not the truth. When you go back to the early church fathers, I'm talking about Polycarp, the others that were apostles of the apostles, and we have their writings. They wrote of the, uh, the books of the New Testament as if they were scripture. They quoted them alongside of the Old Testament. And this was even starting in the Bible because Peter talks about the letters of Paul being scripture that some people twist. And we can see that early church fathers going, going all the way back, you know, maybe you've heard it said that if we lost every manuscript, we've got five, it's almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament, 25,000 total manuscripts in Coptic and other languages. And remember that Coptic language being in Egypt because it was so dry, is very important for, for manuscript discovery. But if we lost all of those, we would be able to recreate the entire Bible from the early church fathers. They quoted from the books that we have in the Bible extensively. In other words, they didn't choose which books it would be, but they identified and were circulating already. It was like what was in those books identified them as scripture they more discovered them as scripture instead of choosing them as scripture. And then very early on in church history, and I don't remember the exact date, uh, you can look it up. Um, we had a list ever, before a council ever came into place that had all of the books of the New Testament in it. And then there was finally a council that codified those books. As far as the other books that are accepted, um, by the, the Jerusalem Bible or the Catholic Church. First of all, with the Old Testament books, we accept the books that the Jews accepted as scripture and they add to them. That tells you that there's a problem. They add to them. And sometimes I think they add to them because it, it, they have some evidence in there for doctrines that they don't have from anywhere else in the Bible. And then any New Testament books that they try to add, let's just talk about Dan, Brown book, Dan Brown's book. Um, and I can't remember the name of it now, but there was a movie that was done by it. And uh, he claimed that they rejected the Gnostic gospels and they accepted the true Christian gospels. The problem with the Gnostic gospels, they weren't around until the late second century, early third century. All of the New Testament books were written either in the first century or early second century. And some scholars believe that they were all written in the first century, even the book of John and the book of Revelation. And I'm talking about scholars. I'm not talking about um, pastors who are reading it and believing it. Personally, I believe they were all written in the first century. I'm a pastor. 
I'm not a scholar. But when I look at scholarly work, there are some scholars who believe that the Bible went back as far as the first century, which we have a, a piece of the book of John that is dated somewhere around 125. That's a copy. The original was probably still around when that copy was made in 125. If John was one of the later of the Gospels to be written and written somewhere in the 90s, this is 45 years from the writing of the autograph copy that we have a piece of it. It could itself be a piece of the original if the dating were a little off, all right? I realize scholars are gonna argue with that and I understand that and I, I won't die on that hill, okay? All I'm saying is we have very early dates for the Gospels and what's written in the Bible for the, the books of the New Testament. All the other books, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, all of those are late second century and afterwards and were never accepted by early church fathers. A little bit later on, there became an argument as to whether or not they should be included, but it was obvious the church fathers had been quoting scriptures that we accept, but none of these things. And even though the Bible was accused of being pseudofigurous for many years, scholars know now that there, there are very few of the New Testament books that are objected to who the author is. Uh, I remember when I was first pastoring that the book of Galatians was said to not be written by Paul. And I read a whole article on why it wasn't written by Paul. Now there are no zero, zero scholars. You might be able to find one outlier, but I'm telling you, 100% of scholars believe Paul wrote the book of Galatians and wrote it early, that it was written sometime in the late 40s. Same with the book of 1 Thessalonians. Absolutely amazing. And no wonder they were quoted so often by early church fathers. So there was no debate and there is no debate when you go back to the early church fathers, how they handled the scriptures. They handled them the same way they handled the Old Testament, that they were scriptures and which ones they included and which ones they didn't include. And then the rest of the Gnostic writings and other writings, some writings were around those days and just got rejected. And they were not handled by the church, early church fathers as if they were scripture. Because they were closer, Paul, to when the letters were written, they were able to know whether or not they were really genuine. And so they wrote them as if they were. This not only happened up in the West, in Rome and in Asia Minor, but it happened down in the South, in Alexandria, Egypt, where there was as big of a Christian community as anywhere else. At the same time, they were accepting all of these writings. So the next time somebody tells you that some council decided to reject the Gnostic Gospels and accept the Christian Gospels, it's wrong. The Gospels were accepted because they recognized their authority. They, no one ever codified them. No one ever said that the book of James is in the Bible. Martin Luther questioned whether it should be in there. Others questioned whether Revelation should be in there. But no one ever said, these are the books that need to be in there. Later on, councils took these books that had been accepted by the early church fathers, the next generation of church fathers and the next generation, and finally came out with a council where they accepted them so that nothing else could be added. But when you go back to the earliest church writings, there's no question, and we, could, we can get the entire Bible from early church fathers. Very, very important topic, and one that is greatly maligned. 
this is going to shock you, but people tell lies. They tell lies to try to hide what the truth is, and they've done that with the Bible for a long time. And um, I think it's time for us to um, turn away from that. I see you got another question here, Jari. I'm going to come back to that, all right? If we, um, if we run out of questions here, we're going to kind of do one at a time now. <clears throat> and if we run out, we'll come back to them. Hey, if you're joining us for the first time, really glad that you're here. Uh, we got some new stuff in the studio going on here. I've used my second camera a couple of times. That seems to be okay now. And uh, we have another camera that will be coming up. Uh, we got rid of the green screen and we've got a screen behind us so that we don't have to deal with that. So there's just some things that are quite a bit better in the studio now. Pretty excited about that, what we're doing here. So we have another question from that comes to us from Brianna. Brianna, good to see you. Brianna says, question, I was reading Ezekiel chapter 10 today and was wondering if you could please explain the importance of the four wheels, please. Thank you. Hope your allergies are better too. Thank you, uh, Brianna. I hope you weren't in the first service this last week. So um, yeah, my Tucson, I don't know if you know Tucson. Tucson has these Palo Verde trees and they turn yellow. Absolutely beautiful. In, in late April, the mesquites turn green, the Palo Verdes bloom, and it is as, as beautiful as any place on planet Earth. A little bit later on in the summer, they'll dry out. The flowers will fall off the Palo Verdes, but those, those Palo Verde trees make my allergies go nuts. And so I got up at three in the morning, my nose was running, and I took uh, two Benadryl, and the first service was pretty pathetic. And then I kind of got it cleared up by the second and the third service on Sunday morning. Um, and I hope you were reading Ezekiel 10 for the glory of the church, um, the glory uh, leaving the temple that we talked about this last week, uh, Brianna. I was reading Ezekiel chapter 10 today and was wondering if you could please explain the importance of the four wheels, please. Um, this mobile chariot throne that we find not only in Ezekiel, <clears throat> but in some other places, I, I don't, I can't really explain it. I can tell you what it said. I can tell you it had wheels. I could tell you it moved around. I could tell you it's not an extraterrestrial. As some people try to point out, that's where they'll go to. Well, the Bible has extraterrestrials and Ezekiel chapter 10 has that. Um, it's just, it, it seems to be the throne of God. And um, we see the throne several places in the Bible. We see it in Daniel 7. We see it in Isaiah, early on in Isaiah. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. I think what's more important than the description of these wheels that are turning and maybe being some kind of technology that we don't have yet that we're going to have, that's kind of where people go with this kind of a thing. I, um, I don't think God's using a technology that we can't use. I think they do probably represent something. I've just never been able to figure out what they represent. Now, Brianne, I'm pretty much of a literalist, <clears throat> meaning that I study the Bible. I study the Bible literally. And by studying the Bible literally, um, I got to get that part figured out. I pretty much study the Bible literally. And uh, by studying the Bible literally, I mean that I don't want to stretch it too far. Because once you stretch it too far, you find yourself believing things that aren't really true. And so I always had trouble when I look back at passages like that and find myself 
not really wanting to dive in too deeply on speculation. I would rather kind of talk about what's really there. And I think that this is just one of those areas that's kind of hard to understand. I'm certainly open to doing a little bit more research on it. Um, when I get back into the book of Ezekiel, I'll take a little bit closer look at it and see if there isn't anything uh, that we can find about it. But thank you very much for your question. I really do appreciate it and appreciate you joining us. Uh, there's Andre. Andre, you missed the first question today. I'm disappointed. Where were you? All right, so Andre says, um, just another Joshua-led, um, just after Joshua led Israel into the promised land, he encounters the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua worshiped him and wasn't corrected. Was this proof that he was the Lord? Yeah, I think not only was it proof that he was the Lord, and thank you for putting the reference down there. Um, I, I think it's not only proof that he was, was the Lord, but I think that we see from the text that he was. So let me go ahead while I'm looking this up, I'll start to give you the story and then we'll read some of it. So Joshua is taking the children of Israel into the promised land. And when he gets there, uh, he's, he's looking around Jericho and Jericho is a military headquarters. And as he does that, he sees a man with his sword drawn. And let me see if I can get there. So five, 14, 14 and 15. Let me see if, uh, where I'm at with my setup here. I've still got my new computer coming in. When it comes in, I'm going to be able to type in scriptures. It's going to be a lot quicker. Um, let's just start here. I'll go ahead and put it up on the screen for you. It says, uh, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you uh, um, or for our adversaries? And he said, no. And I love that the Lord said that to him. Are you for me or are you against me? No. God says, you're for me. I'm not on your side, you're on my side. No, he says. Uh, but as the commander of the Lord's host, I have come. And Joshua fell on his face on the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? I would love to take a look and see what that name, that word for Lord is. Um, looks like it's Adonai. Um, but what does my Lord say to his servant? Uh, then the commander of the Lord's army said, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. And Joshua did so. So the only other holy ground passage we find is in the burning bush where Moses is supposed to take off his feet, uh, his feet. He took off his feet and he stood there, uh, take off his shoes. And so Joshua is to take off his shoes because the feet place he's standing is holy ground. This is what I call the complexity of God in the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament revealing to us the deity of, of, of the, the deity. Uh, in Deuteronomy 4, 6, it says, Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And yet in Genesis 1, 25 and 26, let us make man in our own image. And so they made man in their own image. I realize there are some who claim that that's a council that was saying, let us make man in, in our image. But the council didn't get to create. It was God who created the heavens and the earth. And God created man in his own image. We were not created in the image of spirits. We were created in the image of God, and that's important. Who was the let us? And who, was, who would let us create God in our own image? Who was that? 
And so I see God in that picture. I see God appearing to, uh, to Gideon. I see God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. We know it was, we, it was called the angel of the Lord. And then he says, my name is, is Yahweh. I am who I am. And go, tell the, go tell the people that's who I am. And he was to take off his sandals. Here he worships God. He has to take off his sandals because the ground is holy. There is no holy ground apart from God. And what great lesson this is, that when God's with us, we are holy. Just think about that right now for a moment. If God is with us, then we are holy. Oh, that God would forgive us of our sins, that we would find ourselves, that we would find ourselves, technical difficulties on new equipment, um, that we would find ourselves walking closer with Christ, inviting him in, asking our sins to be forgiven, that we would be walking on holy ground and living our lives holy and wholehearted uh, for him. I think it's um, a great passage. You are absolutely right. There are other places where there are rebukes uh, because um, people fall down to worship angels. And um, Thomas worshiped Jesus. Uh, other people worship Jesus and weren't rebuked. Here we have the angel of the Lord, which I believe is a Christophany, Christ in the Old Testament. There's theophanies, God appearances in the Old Testament, and there's Christophanies, Christ appearing in the Old Testament. And I believe that this was a Christophany, a Christ appearing in the Old Testament. And it is an absolute great passage. All right, Andre, another good question. Uh, as always, we have a question here from JG. JG says, question, what does God also Masons and Illuminati people to infiltrate and subvert, oh, why does God allow, I guess, Masons, Illuminati, and others to infiltrate and subvert uh, Christian churches? All right, JG, I think, um, I think I've got the answer for that. I think Jesus told us in a few parables. One, he said that the kingdom of God was gonna be like a mustard tree Mustard trees don't grow up to be trees. The mustard plant is a bush. And if it's a bush, then if it were to grow up into a tree and the birds of the air were gonna fill its nest, it would become abnormally large. And birds, it seems in the parables, were evil. So these evil birds were gonna fill the nest. So we were going to have in the church those who are true and those who are evil. It would be great if we didn't have that. Remember, Jesus also told the parable about a man who sowed his field with wheat, but his enemy came and sowed it with tares. And he said, what do you do? Don't get the tares out early because you're going to take some of the wheat, but wait until harvest and then take them out. And I think that this is a picture of us waiting until the resurrection, until Jesus resurrects us. And then he is the one who will judge people as to what is right and what is wrong, rather than us trying to decide what is right and what is wrong. I wish that God didn't allow there to be tares in the church. Sure, I wish that we uh, didn't have people who were fake. Jesus said, away from me, uh, I never knew you. And they said, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? Jesus said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And it's the reason uh, that we have to, JG, it's the reason that we have to 
be very careful that we hang on to the truth and we are not deceived, that we don't get caught up in something that is ungodly. But yeah, they are going to infiltrate the church. And we're going to have to be careful to make sure that we're serving and following and living for God wholeheartedly and not getting caught up in all kinds of things uh, that are wrong. All right. So thank you very much, uh, JG. I appreciate that question. Um, it's just something that there's going to be. And we are not told to try to purify the church ourselves, but we have a God who's going to purify the church and not us. So we have, we have another question here from Rod. Rod, um, I was trying to remember the last question. Oh, I know what last question you asked me. Let me talk about that after we're done here. Um, what in the Bible, um, what in the Bible does, where in the Bible does it say to make a faith promise? Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, better to not vow than to break it. Matthew 5, 33 through 36 says not to make an oath, doesn't sound biblical. Where in the Bible does it say to make a faith promise? So I might need a little bit more information from you. Let me talk this through on a couple of different levels. I think I could make a case from scripture that you and I are to not only believe by faith, but we are to live by faith. And when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you've got the children of Israel who hear God say to go into the Red Sea and by faith, they enter the Red Sea. They're also given a promise by God that they are supposed to keep the Passover by smearing the blood on their doorpost so the death angel will pass over. And it says by faith, they kept the Passover. They had God's promise and they kept it. So I think I can make a strong case that by faith, we listen to what God says and then we do it. What exactly would be making a faith promise? How am I going to make a faith promise, Rod? So the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God which means that God gives me a promise, Romans 8, 29, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. And then I have something bad happening in my life now. And so I go to God and I say, Lord, I'm really distraught over this, but I believe you. And I believe that nothing bad is going to happen. I believe that, I believe that that you are going to cause good to come out of this. That even though there are bad things that happen, God is able to make it good because of the love that I have. And so I'm walking with Christ. And even though something bad is going on in my life, I'm trusting him and believing him. And I know what it's like to walk in that kind of faith, to believe God beyond the circumstances, to put our trust in him, even when it comes to losing someone. So my real question that I have for you is, what do you mean when you say making a promise of faith? And maybe I'm missing it. I'm trying to look for the application. 
Where in the Bible does it say to make a faith promise? Maybe this is some theology that I'm not familiar with, some, some group that I'm not familiar with what they're doing. They're, I'm going to make a faith promise right now. Um, faith promise. Is there a faith promise when people are making faith promises for money? I'm going to give this much money. That's my faith promise. I'm going to believe that I'm going to raise it by faith. Um, I would disagree with that. I would say that the Bible, as far as I know, and I'm open to being corrected, doesn't have us making faith promises, making promises by faith. We have the man that asked Jesus to heal his son, and he said, if you are able, would you heal my son? And Jesus said, if you believe all things are possible, and he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But I don't know that we're ever supposed to make faith promises. Now, as far as your passages go, um, yeah, I don't think we're supposed to make vows. I'm not supposed to say to you, Rod, I promise I'm going to do it. I, pro I swear to God, I'm going to do it, Rod. We're not supposed to do that. We're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. And that if I, if I have to start telling you, I promise I'm going to do it. Will you lend me some money? I promise I'm going to pay you back. I promise I will. I really will. I promise. It probably means I've had trouble paying it back before in the past. So that if I borrow 20 bucks from somebody, I don't have to make a vow. I simply say, I'll pay you back. You know, they, I say, hey, can I borrow 20 bucks from you? I'll pay it back a little bit later on. Uh, I'll pay you back next week. And so we, we don't want to take vows to try to make something happen, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And don't swear it. Any, anything beyond that, I think Jesus said, is not faith, if I remember the passage correctly. So I'm not sure what your faith promises are. And I'm not sure... Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they are. I remember the other um, question that you brought up was about our um, our prayer where we lead people to Christ. The prayer that I use specifically to lead people to Christ, um, and saying that we must confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised it from the dead in order to be saved. And I believe that when you come to Christ, you do have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and you are going to come to the place where you say that. But I don't know that that is the initial moment of salvation. I don't know that that passage, in other words, there's another passage that says, uh, if that as many as receive him, this is John 1, 12, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. I think when you stand back and you look at a life of a Christian, they receive Christ, they believe in him, they believe what he says, they believe in the resurrection. I don't know that we have to make people confess Jesus as Lord um, in order to get them saved. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just don't know that we should be critical over that. All right, so that's a little extra answer to an old question that you asked, Rod. All right, but I appreciate you. And um, if you wanna give me an example of a faith promise, and we have time here, um, with exactly what you mean by faith promise, because maybe this is in the faith movement, and um, it's been a long time since I've been in the faith movement. I was in it for a while. It's been a long time since I was in the faith movement. So, um, all right, so we have a question here from Cheryl. Cheryl joins us from Facebook. Cheryl says, in Revelation, 
a warning to one of the churches is about being neither hot nor cold. The church of Laodicea. I just finished my social work degree and I am supported poor personal choices and I must support poor personal choices without godly comment. Is that being neither hot or cold? All right, so let me just read this. I think I got what you're saying, but let me just read it again to make sure I get it. In Revelation, there's a warning against churches about being neither hot nor cold. The, it's the lukewarm church. And God says, I'm either going to spew you out. Um, Laodicea was between Colossae and... Colossae had cold water. The other one had hot water. By the time you brought the hot water up to Laodicea or the cold water, it was lukewarm. And so God was making a statement about them being lukewarm by the very things that were going on in that particular area. Um, and just finish your social work degree. Congratulations, Lynn. That's uh, Cheryl. Cheryl Lynn. That's awesome. I think uh, there is uh, much um, a, a great need for people that will reach out and help people um, that are struggling. I must support poor personal choices without godly comment. Um, I don't know what support means. Someone's telling me, um, I moved in with my boyfriend because it was the best thing for us. And I go, well, that's sin. But I'm a social worker. And I'm probably going to lose my job because of that. I think I strategically keep quiet and try to find a way and pray that God would open up those doors. I, um, I don't think it's a case of being hot or cold, Lynn. Uh, Cheryl, Lynn, Cheryl Lynn. I don't think it's a case of being hot or cold. Um, I think it's a case of is your job in giving people advice where you're at going to have you compromise what you know you should be telling people to be living correctly. Because sin is sin for a reason. And I think that this is really important for us to understand. Sin is sin, is sin for a reason, meaning that there are consequences with it. God didn't just make sin sin and just say, I just want some things that are, that are off limits, so I'm going to take them away from people but sin inherent in sin. When you bear false witness, it's inherent in it. It's wrong. When you move in and begin a sexual relationship without being married, inherent in it is wrong. And it's going to have destructive consequences in their lives. And being in a position where you can't say, that's going to be destructive. Do what you've got to do, move out. If you want to get married, get married but stay celibate for a while and get married and seek God and, 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 and being able to do that without having to um, compromise your own values. I don't know how much of that is happening with you, Cheryl. I don't know um, how much of it would, would be considered to be compromise on your part. Uh, I don't feel like I have to tell everybody. Of course, I'm not working. When I'm, when I'm interacting with a non-believer and they start telling me the things that they're doing that are, that are wrong, or I see them doing some things that are wrong, I don't feel compelled to tell them about it. I want to live Christ in front of them. I want them to see Jesus in me and I want them to come to Christ. Uh, so 
but yours is a job and I would, maybe you need to sit down and talk to someone a little more. Maybe sit down and talk with a Christian that you're really a mature believer about what this, you know, must support poor personal choices without commenting, godly commenting would be that you might be able to get a little bit better direction because I think I'm just talking myself into circles here because I don't know for sure exactly what kind of things you're talking about. Um, I, I, I hope I'm, I'm not copping out. I'm just saying I think you might need to talk to someone a little bit more. And there's a lot of jobs available now. And there's a lot of jobs available in social work. There's a lot of jobs available in Christian social work. So maybe you could find yourself something that is in Christian social work um, where you can talk to people about Christ. I understand a lot of social work not wanting to do that. Um, but hopefully that was somewhat helpful. But if you could find a pastor to talk to um, or someone who's godly, a godly, a godly woman, someone who's walked with Christ for several years, um, good to see you, Vance. Uh, then I would just suggest that you sit down and talk to him where you could give a little bit more detail. Um, a Q&A like this, there, there's there's advantages to it. Then there's things that aren't an advantage. Being able to sit down and talk with someone for a long time to really get clarity um, sometimes is difficult. So we have a question from Andy and Tanya. Can you explain Matthew 12, 43 through 45? Does this mean the devil tempts us more so when we are closer to God? All right. I'm not sure what passage that is. So let's go to Matthew 12, 24, uh, 23 through 45. I am, as I said, got a computer on the way, which is going to allow me to be able to type in these references. And um, this is going to shock you, I know, but we had to wait for it. We couldn't just go out and buy it. It's going to take a time for it to come in. So Matthew 12, 43 through 45, right? Okay, I'm going to go there. So um, this means the devil, devil tempts us when we are closer to God. Let's take a look. So here's what the passage says. Uh, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment against with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. All right, let's go back to your question. Can you explain Matthew 12, 43 through 45? Does this mean the devil tempts us more when we are closer to God? No, I don't think that that's what that means. Let me go back and I'll just work my way through this text, okay? So, let me look here. Let's just go all the way back to the beginning here, all right? Let's just do a little Bible study online. So it says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be, there we go, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. 
So there should have been more of a movement of that generation seeking God without, because Jesus is greater than Jonah, a lot greater than Jonah, by the way. The queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So I do think that this is saying a couple of things. Uh, I think it's saying they wanted a sign, but they had already been given a bunch of signs. And, I, and Jesus told us, the more you know, the greater you're judged. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for Capernaum, which was his headquarters, and Corazon, which was a closed city. Um, we know that we're judged by the light that we know. The more information we have, the more God judges us. And here I'm going to say that Jesus is doing something that is really interesting and talking about if, you, if anybody should have told you anything that would help you to know what the truth is, it's Jesus. It's the Son of God. It's the Messiah. But the generation of Jonah repented. The Queen of the South came and sought God. And a greater than Jonah and a greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus is saying that they're going to have to answer more because they were privileged to be able to have a relationship with God at that particular point in time, but um, they were not able to really turn and follow after God. Uh, does this mean the devil tempts us more so when we are closer to God? I was trying to think if I can think of a passage that would say that that's the case. <clears throat> I'm just gonna say maybe seems to me that there's something that I might be missing, but I, but I think, <clears throat> I think maybe, maybe when we're closer to Christ too, we just don't fall into the schemes of the enemy. Remember, the, the evil one cannot hurt us unless we cooperate with him. So the Bible says, give no place to the devil. So I think that's uh, probably pretty important for us. All right. So thank you very much, Andy and Tanya. Not quite sure whether I answered your question uh, completely or not, but uh, let's go ahead and uh, uh, take another question here. Um, so we have another question from Fact Check These Hands. I'm gonna go ahead, I, I may come back for that again. Fact Check These Hands, we're trying just to take one at a time right now until the end of our study and we're pretty close. Um, you can resubmit that later on or maybe I'll read it. We're actually doing something different for the first question. We are taking our first question from our Bible study a little bit later on tonight. We're gonna be talking about the curse of the law, that if you are under the law, you could be blessed or you could be cursed. If you can keep it, you have these incredible blessings. But if you can't keep it, you're cursed. And no one's going to be able to do anything by the law because the law is weak and it can't be done. But there are still people today that try to defend it. And a lot of people, a lot of people are upset now at our studies in the book of Galatians now because we are clearly showing that you cannot be saved by the law. You can't walk by the law. You can't do anything by the law that would add anything to Christ afterwards. You're saved by faith. You walk in faith. You'll finish your race in faith. And none of that includes the law. A lot of people are really, really upset at that. All right, so we have a question that comes to us from YouTube. Why is a lot of translations mistranslate G4203 as sexual immorality? And I, I take it that's the word porneia, right? 
when all seven verses that use this word, none of them refer to physical sex. Boy, I'm not sure that that's true. I think, I think the word G, that, that the Greek word G4203, you know what? I'm going to take some time to find, I'm going to take some time to find this. I just think it's important enough for us to do it. All right. So let me just take a moment to find it. If a woman marries a man, she commits a dope. Man, let me try this again. If a man marries a woman, he commits adultery with her unless it's for sexual immorality. Scripture. Just taking time now to see if I can find where that passage is at. Um, did I get it? Matthew 19, 9. Sound correct? Let me go there now. Matthew 19, 9. You know what I want to do? I want to go there on my strongs. Uh, sorry, sorry to take so much time here, guys. As I said, I'm, I'm working on getting a new computer, so I'll be able to type these in. It will be much quicker. But I think that this is important enough. I wish, um, when you're writing out a question like this, give me the reference, I'll be able to look it away. So that, Matthew, well, Matthew 9, 19. Let me get to Matthew 19. I'm going to take my time and find this because I think it's important enough to talk about it here. Yeah. Okay, so I don't think that that's the passage. That's not the number you were talking about. Let's just, let me just bring this up on screen. We'll see if we can figure out what number it is. All right. So this is my Strong's Concordance. It's Matthew 19, 9 here. It says, I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife except for fornication. So let me go there. Whoever shall put away his wife except for fornication. Is that 4203? Was that the verse you were talking about? Let me go back and look here. 4203, there we go, we found it. All right, so the word means, this is the Strong's Concordance. There's gonna be um, BDAG and some other word studies that are gonna do better, but this can give you a basic idea, okay? Harlotry, including adultery, incest, figuratively, idolatry, fornication. So that's physical sin. I think that you could say that porneia, we get our word pornography from it. I think you could say that porneia includes sexual, physical contact, but doesn't have to be just physical contact. It might be someone who is completely addicted to it. So why do a lot of translations mistranslate uh, G4203? And I don't think they do. A sexual morality. I think sexual morality is a good translation. Um, Another thing that could be fun to do, I think I'm going to, let me just, let me just do something here real quick. Um, I'm going to pull up Bible Hub and I'm going to put in this verse and see if I can uh, get the different translations here. Matthew. 19.9. I don't know whether this is going to work or not. We're going to give it a try. 
All right, let's go ahead and bring this up on the screen. Let's go, to, like I said, do a little Bible study here um, by just what we can find here. So the New International Version says, I tell you, if anyone divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, so that's the New International Version. New Living Translation, divorces his wife and marries someone else who commits adultery. Um, English Standard Version, good version, okay? And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Um, King James Bible, fornication. Um, New King James, which is what I use, sexual immorality. NASB, I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. NASB 95, probably your best translation um, when you're studying God's word. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another, which would include physical sin. So, yeah, I'm not sure what point was trying to be made by why do translations mistranslate G42 as sexual immorality when all seven verses that use it, the word, none of them refer to physical sex. I just think that's not true. I think it refers to physical sex. And if you have further examples, uh, then I'd love to hear them. I mean, if I'm wrong, and there's a verse that obviously doesn't talk about physical sex because Matthew 19, 19 does. And the word actually means that, all right? And um, so I don't know, I don't know who, where you heard that from or why you might think that or what your conclusions might be. I don't wanna jump into anything uh, that, I might not wanna jump into anything that might not be true about you and why you would ask that question so we'll just kind of let that go. And if you want to add anything to that, you can. We're getting close to the end of our Q&A for today. Good to be able to spend time with you guys. We'll see if we got any more questions that are here. As always, if you have a question, write the word question out in front of it and then write your question. Otherwise, I'm going to pass by it. And um, sometimes I do that and I'm sorry about that. I love seeing your guys' interaction together. I think that's a great community that we're building here. Let's see. Let me just go ahead and um, we got a question from Renee. Renee says, how do you know when you start a church? Um, how do you know when you start a church how do you know, thank you, Pastor Robert, how do you know? So how do you know when to start a church? How do you know? Ah, um, well, Renee, when you're laying in bed at night and suddenly you hear, go start a church in Tucson, is not the way it happens. So let me just kind of explain to you a little bit about the way that it happened with me. And, um, and then I'll kind of give you a, a little bit more information. Um, first of all, I believe that I was called to be a pastor, which was really a weird thing because I was a certified auto mechanic. I went to TVI in Albuquerque. Really, the only reason I went to school because I had a business at the time was that I was continuing to be paid my father's social security if I continued to go to school after high school. So I went to TVI and I became certified with rebuilding motors particularly. Um, but I was also a youth pastor and also going through a pastoral, a shepherd school with Pastor Skip Heitzig. 
And I believe God had called me to be a pastor. And I've been saying that for a lot of years. First time I ever said it was to my mom when I was about 12, when I said, I, I wanna be a pastor because they only work one day a week. I found out that really wasn't true. Um, but Skip saw in me a gift of teaching. He identified it. And so he had me teach a few times for him on Thursday nights and began to encourage me to go someplace and plant a church. And I didn't really feel like God was calling me to Santa Fe. That's one of the places he, he, he suggested. Santa Fe was very close to Albuquerque. It would have been really easy for us with family. Tucson's not that far away. But um, I went to him and had built my business to the place where I was, I had a manager. I didn't have to be there all the time. And I told Skip, I wanna put more time into the kids. And Skip said, have you thought about Tucson? We just got a call from there. There's a small group of people meeting. They don't have a pastor. There's no church like Calvary in Tucson. And I thought, maybe, let me pray about it. And I began to pray about it with Lisa and we determined God wants us to go to, to Tucson. We visited, we made a decision to go here and then there was a hiccup and we, and we didn't go. And a friend of mine said, I thought you said that you were gonna go to Tucson. You told me God told you. And I told him, I still think I'm supposed to go. That's unlike my character, by the way. I still think I'm supposed to go. About two weeks later, call, uh, Paul uh, Skip called me and said, listen, I know there's another Calvary starting in, in, in Tucson, but it's a, it's a big town. And this is a small Bible study. Just go and stay away from them. If they go right, you go left. If they go north, you go south. And I think you're supposed to go. And I said, I think I'm supposed to go too. And so we flew down because we weren't, I wasn't so sure that God was gonna start a church here. I just wanted to see what God was gonna do, kind of a step of faith. So I flew and everybody told me, you can't fly down and plant a church. People aren't gonna go. They want someone who's committed to the city. But I flew down, did my studies on, on the weekend and then flew back home and worked at the shop and then started flying down Thursdays and Sundays. And by, this was in October, so we went through November and December and there were, by that point, over 100 people. And we had determined that God really did want us to move here. So on January 1st of 2000, uh, 1986, we moved to Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I think God's going to confirm it in a lot of different ways. I've seen a lot of, we've sent a lot of young men out. We've seen God plant churches in a lot of different ways. And uh, so I think there's a lot of ways that that could happen. God can begin the calling, but I think God's gonna lay a gift of teaching and a heart with someone to go and plant a church. And it's all gonna be different and it's gonna look different in a lot of different ways. All right, so it is 5.02. Um, I've really enjoyed uh, spending some time with you guys today, um, answering your questions. Uh, let me bring in this, it might be a follow through, a little bit of clarity for Rod. Uh, we are saved through Jesus Christ and worship volunteer, giving tithes and offerings to specific local churches eight years. Where does it say we need to be a member with the church in the Bible? It doesn't. You are a member of the church when you are born again. You become part of the ecclesia when you are born again. Um, we're not saved through worship, volunteering, tithes, or offerings. Those are all works. Those are all things Christians do. We are saved when we, when we receive Christ and are born again. The Bible says in John 1, 12, as many as receive him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And if you've never said, Lord, come into my life, I wanna live for you. I'm sorry for my sin. 
I, I receive the work that you did up on the cross. Forgive me and come into my life. Change me, as it says in 2 Timothy, I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. And becoming a Christian has nothing, zero, to do with joining a church, all right? Now, forsaking the gathering of yourselves together is a problem. And we wanna make sure that we're not doing that, but it has nothing to do with joining a church. All right, so it's been really good seeing you guys. Um, we will be back together again, Lord willing, on Saturday. We'll have another Q&A from four till five o'clock. Uh, if you watch this service tonight, it's a great section in Galatians. We're in the theological section of Galatians. We're gonna get into the, the application section in the last two chapters, but chapters three and four, you don't wanna miss. It, it's defending the fact that by faith we are, we are saved, by faith we live, by faith we will complete the work for God and nothing will be in between it. So I'm gonna go ahead and sign out. I love you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, search the word of God to know what is true. Stand on God's word because it will never return back void. All right, I'll see you guys in just about an hour. We have a service. You can watch at CalvaryTucson.com, YouTube, Facebook. Uh, you could also join us if you're here in Tucson, six o'clock at our East Campus and 7.15 at our West Campus. All right, love you guys. We'll see you later on.